want you to think about with me some inventions or some events in history that changed the course of history. And I started, to, as I thought about that, I started to jot down some um, inventions, and then we'll look at some events that, that impact our lives and has impacted history. For instance, somebody invented the wheel. I don't know who that was, I should have looked it up, but at some point in time, it was about 3500 B.C., somebody invented the wheel and it made life a lot easier in a lot of areas. Johann Gutenberg, 1440, invented the printing press. And now all of a sudden we can produce and mass produce uh, literature and writing through the wonder of the printing press. 1844, the telegraph was invented. 1870s, Thomas Edison, the incandescent light bulb. And think, think about it, until the 1870s, I mean, when it got dark, it was dark and you were pretty much done. And, and so the, the light bulb has changed the way that we have operated our lives. The invention of the telephone, Alexander Graham Bell, uh, the Wright brothers, the airplane. And now we can travel all around the globe and all around the world and in just a few hours time and be across an ocean because of the invention of the airplane the television, the computer, the internet, they've all changed our lives. Events in human history have changed our lives as well. Christopher Columbus, you remember that poem, Sailed the Ocean Blue, and something 1492, I forget how it goes, but he discovered America. And uh, that changed history. 1776, the Declaration of Independence that, that our forefathers signed, and now the United States became a nation. December 7th, 1941, President Roosevelt said, a day that will live in infamy. And uh, that attack by the Japanese on, uh, on Pearl Harbor. More recently, uh, in most of our lifetime, July 20th, 1969, it was Neil Armstrong that uh, took that first step on the moon. And, and I remember it clearly because uh, as, as a young person, I, I was fascinated with that. I was nine years old. It happened on a Wednesday night, and he, he stepped on the, the, the moon's surface, and he says, that's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind, and, and space exploration. That changed history. How about 20 years ago? September 11th, 2001. And uh, all of us, if you were alive then, remember where we were when we found out that those um, planes hit the Twin Towers and the Pentagon building and the one that went down in the field in Shankville, Pennsylvania. All those inventions and all those events changed human history. But I want to tell you this morning that all those inventions and all those events pale in comparison to what we're looking at this morning. Because the empty tomb has the most significant event in all of world history. The reason I say that is because all of those inventions and all of those events changed time and history. But the resurrection of Jesus Christ not only was an event in time and history, but it changed all of eternity. And so we want to look at the resurrection of Christ this morning as the, the key, the most significant 
cornerstone event in all history because what you decide about the resurrection and the empty tomb will determine where you will spend eternity. Either in heaven with with God and Christ and believers or separated from God for all of eternity in a place called hell. And so we want to look this morning at um, the resurrection. We want to look at the prophecies of the resurrection the proof of the resurrection, and then some practical applications. So um, let's let's look at, first of all, the prophecies of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I want you to know this morning that the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ was not some sort of backup plan. That God wasn't up in heaven, and when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, God wasn't like, oh man, um, we need to come up with a plan B. We need to come up with a, a backup plan. I've been the last few months have been in contact with uh, some some couples. They're gonna um, I'm gonna officiate at their their wedding this year, and I've got four of them. Three of them are outdoor weddings. And one of the things I say to when I meet with couples about the outdoor weddings, like, okay, tell me. Um, what is your backup plan? <laughs> you know, uh, we're going to plan on nice weather, we're going to plan on a sunny day, but you've got to have a backup plan if it rains or if there's inclement weather. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ was not a backup plan. It was something that was planned before eternity began. And we read about that in Ephesians chapter 1 as Paul writes to the Ephesian church. He says, Praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing, for He chose us in Him, this is the salvation plan, before the creation of the world. Before Genesis 1. God had planned out the plan of salvation, eternal redemption, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Well, that's very evident as you look at the Old Testament. Isaiah 53 writes, a, uh, the, the prophet Isaiah 700 B.C., and he writes about the cross. He writes about the suffering servant that Jesus is going to, what, have to suffer and die. The Messiah will suffer and die for the sins of the world. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Psalm chapter 16, verses 9 and 10. This was written by David. 1,000 B.C., a thousand years before Christ. This is what David writes in Psalm 16, verse 9. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest secure because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. So David is saying, my, my body will not stay dead. You're not going to abandon me, God, when you die. The next phrase, depending on what your version uh, translation says, uh, nor will you let your faithful one, or most translations say your holy one, see decay. Nor will you let your holy one see decay. Who's he referring there to? He's referring to Jesus. He's saying a thousand years before the, the cross, David is writing and said, the Holy One will not decay in the grave. God won't allow that to happen. Now, in case we're wondering, 
is that really referring to Jesus? We we can go to uh, several other uh, passages and and see that in, when we get to the New Testament, Peter, in his sermon on Pentecost, is preaching to to uh, a crowd of people in Jerusalem, and he's writing about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And when he gets to the point about Jesus going to the cross and dying and raising again. He writes, but God raised him from the dead, freeing from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep his hold on him. And then he goes, this is what David said about him. What does he do? He quotes Psalm 16, 9 and 10, the verses we just read. This is what David prophesied, that God's Holy One is not going to see decay. His body will not stay in the grave. The Apostle Paul, the same Reference in Acts 13, and he's preaching again, and he does the same thing. He quotes Psalm 16, and he refers it to Jesus. And so as we read the scriptures, we discover that um, not only was the plan of salvation planned out before the beginning of time, but we can go to other passages in the Old Testament that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was prophesied and predicted. And Jesus himself did it many, many times. Just look at uh, some references from the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 12, Jesus referring to Jonah. He says, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so the Son of Man will be what? Three days in the ground. In John chapter 2 verse 19, he's looking at the temple and he's talking to the religious leaders and he says, uh, he says, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And they're all laughing at him because they're like, it took 46 years to build this temple. You're going to raise it up in three days? And the Bible says, no, he's talking about his body. He wasn't talking about the actual physical structure of the temple. He's prophesying about his resurrection. Well, many other passages, we don't have time to look at them, but uh, maybe just one more. Matthew chapter 16, verse, verse 21 Jesus, at some point in time in his ministry, begins to talk to the disciples about what's going to happen. He begins to talk to his disciples about the death and his his burial and his resurrection. Matthew 16, 21, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer for many things at the hands of the religious leaders, the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed on the third day and be raised to life. And he told them over and over and over again. Now we have the benefit of 2,000 years of history and looking back at history and reading the scriptures, but the disciples never really got it. They never really fully comprehended what Jesus was saying. Well, the prophecy of the resurrection is all through the scriptures. But let's look at the proof of the resurrection. The proof of the resurrection. And this is really... This is really key. Um, C.S. Lewis um, uh, and Josh McDowell quote C.S. Lewis in his book, uh, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, uh, a chapter of Lord, Lunatic or Liar, and he says really the only viable option is, is that either Jesus is who he claimed to be, he's the Lord of the universe and the grave is empty, or he's a liar. We just saw that he predicted that he would come back to life, or he's a lunatic. Those, those are the only 
uh, categories we can choose when it comes to who Jesus is and his resurrection, but let's look at the proof of the resurrection. I've been reading a book by Dr. Erwin Lutzer, pastor emeritus of Moody Church in Chicago, and it's entitled, We Will Not Be Silenced, Responding Courageously to Our Culture's Assault on Christianity. There's eight chapters in it, and he describes how the cultural left is seeking to remake America. Chapter 2 is entitled, Rewriting the Past to Control the Future. Rewriting History to Control the Future. Here's what he, he quotes George Orwell. Who controls the past controls the future. George Orwell, who wrote during the rise of communism, pointed out that if you can rewrite or even erase the past, you can help people forget who they are and forge a new future. Revising history lies at the heart of all social and political revolutions. Revising history. So here's the key question. Did Jesus Christ really rise from the dead? Now back in Jesus' day, there were some religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and one thing that separated the Sadducees from the Pharisees was that the Sadducees did not believe in the doctrine of the resurrection. And they didn't believe in the truth that a, a person could come back to life from the dead. Many people in, in the first century did not believe it either. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says, uh, uh, how, how come many of you are de- denying the resurrection? Then he writes about, if Christ didn't rise again, and he, he writes about all those ramifications, and then he says, but Christ has risen from the dead. A couple of recent surveys, one from uh, the country of Britain, 2010, 2010 British adults surveyed between February 12th February 2nd and February 12th of 2017, commissioned by the BBC radio station, says a quarter of people who describe themselves as Christians in Great Britain do not believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You cannot be a Christian and not believe in the resurrection of Jesus. That's an oxymoron goes on to say exactly half of all people surveyed in this survey in Britain did not believe in resurrection at all. They denied that the resurrection can happen. This is a survey more uh, a survey in America. Uh, a Rasmussen sur- report survey, uh, April 7th, 2012, reached a poll finding that 77% of Americans... This is 2012, so about nine years ago. Believe the resurrection of Christ to be a historical fact. They did that same survey a year later, April 2013. It found that 64% of Americans believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And I would venture to say in 2021, that percentage is even lower. Well, um, there's great proof of the resurrection of Jesus from the, from the dead. I'm just going to look at three quick thoughts here. First of all, let's think about the empty the empty tomb, the empty tomb. And we won't read these verses from Scripture, but we know that when Jesus died, and um, the, the Jews wanted to um, 
to get Jesus buried quickly because uh, uh, Passover was coming, which would have started at, at, at sundown on Friday, and it would have been unclean for them to touch a dead body. And so it was Joseph of Arimathea, along with Nicodemus, who uh, took some spices and took linen cloths and wrapped the body of Jesus. I discovered uh, about a hundred pounds of spices that they would use normally to prepare a body for, for burial. And then Jesus was buried in that, that tomb, that, that rock uh, hillside where uh, carved out of that rock would have been a, a, a tomb. And uh, here they, they would have taken a large round stone and there was a groove and they would have a wedge in the stone, but the groove would have an incline downward and the opening was about four and a half feet. And when the body was in there, they would remove that little wedge and that large stone would roll down and it would cover the entrance of the tomb. Now researchers um, have done some research. Uh, engineers at Georgia Tech University estimated the size of such a stone to cover a four and a half foot opening in that tomb to weigh approximately Three to four thousand pounds. So here's this, and the Bible describes it as a very large rock covering the opening of the tomb, and then we discovered that it was sealed by the Roman government. They were concerned about somebody stealing the body of Jesus, and so the religious leaders go to the Roman government, and, and so they not only have this rock in front of the tomb, but then they have a seal on it with a stamp of authority of the Roman government, and anybody that breaks that seal, the penalty is death. Not only that, they assigned Roman soldiers to guard the tomb. This group of Roman soldiers would have been anywhere from four to sixteen soldiers. They probably didn't look like the pictures that we see holding a spear. They would have been armed with five different weapons. They would have been an elite guard. And if anything happened to that body, their lives were on the line. And so is it any wonder that when on that resurrection day morning, when the ladies went to the tomb, and, and um, one of the things they're asking is, how are we going to get in there? How are we going to move this stone to get in to put the spices on the body of Jesus? And of course we know that when they get there, the Bible says the tomb was empty. The tomb was empty. That created a great problem, and so they had to come up with a cover-up. And the cover-up that was told the Roman uh, guards and, and soldiers is found in Matthew chapter uh, 28. This is when the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan. They gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you are to say, his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And to this and this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Fake news. All right, here's how we're going to cover up. So you you say that hey, we fell asleep. We all fell asleep, and somehow somebody came in while we were sleeping and moved broke the seal and moved a 4,000 pound stone and stole the body. 
And that was their, that was their cover-up story. Well, the, the empty tomb is proof of the resurrection. Uh, secondly, the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. So, for six weeks, Jesus appeared to people after he rose from the dead. Now, Jesus' body wasn't a, wasn't a spirit body. It was a literal physical flesh and blood body. I mean, he ate food and he met with people and, and, and Jesus made many post-resurrection appearances to the woman at the tomb on that resurrection morning, to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, to the apostle Peter, to the twelve disciples, uh, one time when Thomas wasn't present and the second time when Thomas was present and then Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, he appeared to more than 500 people at one time. And he says, many of them are still alive today. You can go talk to them. We've seen Jesus. We've touched Jesus. He's made many resurrection appearances. And finally, Paul says, and he also appeared to me on that road to Damascus. Well, uh, the, the, the empty tomb is proof of the resurrection the, the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus, and you can read that passage. There, there are many that that uh, are enumerated there. But thirdly, is the proclamation of the apostles. What's the message of the gospel? From this time forward, the gospels began. The uh, disciples and the apostles began to preach what the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. They said, "We are eyewitnesses." And so here's the. The timeline, Easter Sunday morning, 40 days of post-resurrection appearances. Jesus ascends to heaven. Ten days, the, the believers meet in upper room in Jerusalem for ten days, waiting for the day of Pentecost. And on the 50th day after the resurrection of Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes. The disciples are filled with the Spirit. Peter is talking and preaching to a crowd of people in Jerusalem, thousands of people. And Peter stands up, the one who six weeks, seven weeks earlier had denied that he even knew Jesus, and now he's, he's filled with the Spirit, and he begins to preach. Acts 2.22, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. This wasn't an accident. This was God's plan. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross, but Jesus raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to hold him. So Peter's proclaiming the death burial, and resurrection of Jesus. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John preach the same message. They're, they're in Jerusalem and they're preaching the empty tomb. Now, if anybody had any doubts that the tomb was empty, and here's Peter in Jerusalem preaching to thousands of people the empty tomb, guess what? They weren't very far from that tomb. I mean, he, Peter's not preaching this message on, uh, you know, a thousand miles away. He's in Jerusalem. Anybody could have gone to that tomb for themselves 
and challenged Peter. <laughs> that tomb's not empty. They could have done that. But, but nobody did. Nobody questioned it. Acts chapter 4, all the apostles uh, continue to testify. It says Acts 4.33, with great power, the apostles continued to testify to what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. Well, we could go on and on, but um, the fact of the matter is, uh, the scriptures plainly tell us the tomb is empty. And Jesus demonstrated it by making post-resurrection appearances. And the apostles proclaimed the message, and Paul, the apostle Paul writes that, hey, if Christ isn't risen from the dead, we're false witnesses, we're liars, we're still dead in our sins, we're, we're without hope. But then he says, but Christ has risen from the dead. And so this morning as we close, we just want to think about, uh, as we think about the proof of the resurrection, the preaching of the apostles, um, the post-resurrection, the empty tomb, and the prophecies, we want to think about the practical realities of the resurrection. The practical realities of the resurrection. And so let's look at just three of them this morning as we close. Here's the first one. While death is inevitable, death is not final. While death is inevitable, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27 it is appointed unto man once to die. When you're young, you don't think about death. When you're young, you think that you have your whole life ahead of you. When you think you think about um, just maybe what, what your plans are, what God's plans are, but as you progress down through life, you get a little further down the pathway. You begin to think about the fact that death is inevitable. I've had conversations this week about how the older you get, Diane and I are 65, the older you get, the more people that you know and love pass away. So just this Thursday, I presided at the funeral of our good friend, 67 years old. Gets a diagnosis of cancer in early December. Three and a half months later, John's with his Lord and Savior. And the older you get, the more and more you realize that this life is, uh, as James describes it, um, uh, our life is but a, a vapor. It's but a short period of time. But the good news for believers in Jesus Christ is that Death is not final because Jesus says in John eleven twenty five and 26, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, even though he were dead, yet shall he live. In John chapter 14, verse 19, he says, Because I live, you shall live also. And so as we stand by the graveside, we realize that death is not final. A tombstone in a cemetery in Indiana, and I quoted it almost every funeral service that I have the privilege of presiding at, but the tombstone in the um, cemetery in Indiana engraved in that one tombstone is this. As you pass me by, so you are now, so once was I. As I am now, 
so you will be. So prepare for death and follow me. It's a reminder that unless Jesus comes, death awaits all of us. But the good news is that death is not final. Secondly, um, secondly, we have hope. Uh, for, for those that have put their faith and trust in Jesus as their Lord and Savior, we have hope. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, Paul writes to the, the, the church there, uh, we don't want you to be uninformed about those who've died so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. As a believer in Jesus Christ, if your loved one dies, then know Jesus. Yes, we grieve and we have sorrow, but we have what? We have hope. And the hope is what? Resurrection. The hope is we're going to see Him again someday. And I can personally testify to this as having lost my dad last year in the end of August and going to his funeral and and going into the church and as I've done hundreds of times, but it's different when it's your dad or your mom or your loved one and I see my dad in the casket for the first time. And I shared with people like I was amazed that I had a great peace. I, I you know, I thought it I thought it would be difficult, I thought it would be traumatic. And I looked at my dad and God gave him a long life and he served God to the best of his ability till the very end and I saw that body in that um casket and like, well, that's not my dad. <laughs> that's just his that's just his old tent. That's his exterior shell. I know where he's at. He's in a much better place. And so as I quoted at the funeral Thursday for John, when you think about what you've lost, think about what they've gained. Yes, we, we sorrow and we grieve, but, but not without hope. And so the Apostle Paul tells us the order here. He says, well, since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, since we believe in the resurrection, and he tells us the order of things that's going to happen and there's going to be a return of Christ and the dead in Christ are going to rise first and the rapture of believers and then there's going to be a reunion in the air. And he says, therefore encourage one another with these words. There's hope. I don't care how bad your situation is right now. I don't care what problems you're facing, how deep, your sorrow or hurt is and what's going on in your life. But I want to tell you, if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, no matter how dark and bad things get, you have hope. And our hope is not in this world, but it's in the life to come. The hymn says, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Well, lastly, this morning, the third practical application is that we must stand firm in our faith and in our works. First Corinthians fifteen fifty eight, that great resurrection chapter, and and uh, if you haven't read First Corinthians fifteen, it's a long chapter, but I'd encourage you to read it. But uh, he concludes the Apostle Paul, verse 57, Thanks be to God, He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He's, he's summarizing that whole chapter. And then he applies the chapter to our life. Here's, here's the application. 
Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, three commands and one encouragement. Stand firm. Let nothing move you. Some of your translations might say, uh, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. Because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Now, Paul is talking about, we need to be very clear here, the relationship between faith and works. And there's a whole book in the Bible uh, that describes this relationship in the book of James. So here's what we need to be very, very clear about. We are saved by faith alone in Jesus Christ. Nobody can earn their way to heaven. No amount of good works can repay our sin debt. We're saved by faith alone in Christ Jesus. But then the Bible says, saving faith is never really alone. In other words, if you recognize that Jesus gave his life and died on the cross for your sins and paid your sin debt and rose again on the third day, guess what? Genuine saving faith responds by receiving him as Savior, but also saying, what can I do for him? How can I serve him? How can I thank him? And so the Apostle Paul says, hey, I want you to stand firm in what you believe. And as our culture moves more and more toward counterculture against Christianity. And guess what? Uh, you know, 50 years ago, what we believe would have been in the majority opinion. Guess what? Uh, we're no longer majority opinion in, a, in America. And if you're really going to stand for Christ and stand for the truth, uh, it might get a little more difficult. It might cost you something in our culture today. But Paul says, stand firm. Be unmovable unshaken in this truth. But then also, I want you to what? Always abound in your work for the Lord. Keep on serving Him. And don't be discouraged because you know that your labor, your work for the Lord is not in vain. It's worth it. It's worth it. Keep on serving Keep on abounding in the work of the Lord. Death is not final. There's hope. There's victory in Jesus. Let me close by reading maybe the greatest section of Scripture that's ever been written. It's all all God-breathed, but perhaps the Mount Everest of Scripture is Romans chapter 8 that talks about the security of people who know Christ as their Savior. Romans 8, 31 through 39, it's nine verses. Let me read it. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? The answer is no one. It's a rhetorical question. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? The answer is no one. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and He's interceding for you and me. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or COVID-19 
I added that, by the way. Or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That, my friends, is is victory. That, my friends, is assurance. That, my friend, gives us hope, not only for today, but for the future. Because the empty tomb, Jesus is alive. He's conquered sin and death. Let's pray together. Lord, we're so thankful that as we gather here this morning, on April 4th, 2021, that we recognize the truth of the empty tomb. Lord, thank you that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. Lord, thank you for the good news, the gospel. Lord, I pray that if there's one person here that doesn't know for sure that their sins are forgiven, that heaven is their eternal destiny. Should they, should they lay their head on the pillow tonight and, and not wake up in the morning? Lord, I, I pray that they would realize that salvation is a gift. It's not about doing, but it's about what you've done. And that they can receive the gift by praying a very simple prayer. Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. And that I know that you died for me. And you paid my sin debt. And right now I put my faith in Jesus and Jesus alone as my Lord and Savior. I repent of my sin and ask you to be my Lord and Savior. Lord, I thank you that as an eight-year-old boy, I prayed that revolutionary prayer. And it's forever changed my life. And so, Lord, I pray that everybody here knows the gospel and that we have assurance that we have hope, a hope that is beyond this world. Lord, we thank you for the truth of the gospel and the empty tomb and what it means for us today. We'll thank you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.